I'd like to have you turn, if you will, to Colossians chapter 1. And don't think that that'll be the last time you hear that because it'll be here for a little while. We've already been here eight weeks. This is our eighth week in our study of Colossians. But I can tell you this, once you get past chapter 1, it's going to fly. Just <laughs> Well, I say that now, and we'll see. But we have uh, taken the time to truly dig deep into the very thoughts and intents of the heart of the Apostle Paul, who under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wrote this letter to a church that was young, vibrant, and a church that was very loving. That He received reports of how loving they were toward each other. But his main concern had to do with the false teachings and the aberrant teachings of Gnosticism that was coming into the churches of Asia Minor and all those surrounding the area of Colossae. We spent a considerable amount of time looking at the salutation and introduction of this letter, finding out that Paul used it as an opportunity to lay down a foundation, a doctrinal foundation, providing us the pillars of our faith, providing this young church with the pillars of their faith to stand upon. And now as we enter into our study of verses 15 through 20, as we started last week, we realize that this is one of the greatest passages on the supremacy of our Lord Jesus Christ. To get into it clearly and in context, we want to again read in verses 9 through 20. That'll be our reading here as we get into our study for today. For this cause we also, Paul said, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet or has enabled us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him, and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, 
whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And so from the very onset of this letter, the Apostle Paul has been encouraging this young and loving congregation that there is none that can be compared to their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There is no one or nothing that can be compared to Jesus. No one person or one thing can be compared to Christ Jesus our Lord and our Savior. In fact, the whole of this chapter, especially its salutation, its preface, and its foundational theme, has no superior. And there are a few supportive references expressing the apostolic doctrine of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And these are just some of them. For example, Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul in verse 19 says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought or he produced in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Again, these are supportive references to this passage that we're looking at in Colossians to focus our attention upon the supremacy of Christ in all things. Take, for example, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Already we see, and we'll go on in just a minute, but already we see here how Paul is establishing the fact that Jesus being in the form of God, that is not a statement to say that he's less than God. That is a statement to say that he is God. Yet he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. This is no hostile takeover here. He says, but he made himself voluntarily, made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, at the name of Yeshua, Yeshua, his Hebrew name, which means God is salvation. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow <coughs> of things in heaven <coughs> and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Scripture is very clear. No one can be called Lord except God. The establishment of Jesus as deity, as God in the flesh is made clear by the Apostle Paul. In one verse of scripture that I read to you very often, Paul said in Galatians 2 verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. It's very clear that that reference has to do with this relationship between the Son and the Father. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
To the church in Corinth, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks or Jews and Gentiles, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. That is, that is no uh, small thing to say about Jesus. Those are the things that are supportive, in, es- in essence, the reference is supportive of Paul's statement of supremacy of Jesus Christ in this book of Colossians. Now, I began our previous study with the understanding that Jesus' relationship to the Father was the basis of the redemption and forgiveness mentioned in verse 14. Verse 14 that we read in just, uh, just a, a moment ago, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And I mentioned that being the basis of the relationship with the Father because that there could be no redemption or forgiveness. And I said this last week, there could be no redemption or forgiveness unless Christ was both God and man. He has to be both God and man for redemption and forgiveness to be effective upon our lives. So it is in Jesus Christ, in Christ, that we have redemption and forgiveness. Now it's very interesting that where it says that we have these things, we have them because we possess them. These are things that we as believers in Jesus Christ possess. We possess redemption. We possess forgiveness. The word redemption encapsulates the other five words found in the New Testament that express the work of Jesus Christ. The others being sacrifice, offering, propitiation, which which is uh, the atoning sacrifice, ransom. We quoted uh, from the, the Gospel of Mark where Jesus said, I did not come to be served but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. And then there's also the word reconciliation. Those six words, including redemption, uh, are, are really what tells us Jesus' work was. But redemption encapsulates them all. Redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ, therefore, emphasizes for us the completeness of Christ's work. Christ's work is complete. He doesn't have to do anything else for us. He doesn't have to repeat as the sacrifices of, of, uh, of, of, the, uh, uh, of the Jewish people back when they were receiving the, the types of, of uh, what uh, would be, of course, the, the coming of Jesus Christ to be the Lamb of God, the sacrifice, the, 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 the complete atoning sacrifice for us. It's not a thing done every year. It's not something done every week. It is something that he completed, as it says in the book of Hebrews, once for all. It's complete. The work of Jesus is complete. What do false cults and false uh, uh, religions and, and, and false prophets teach? They teach it's, okay, well, we like Jesus, but we like Jesus with a lot of other things. We don't need a lot of other things. We have Jesus. That's the whole point of what Paul is teaching. Forgiveness itself is the specific facet or characteristic of redemption. It simply means removal or sending away. That is what forgiveness means. It is a removal or it is a sending away, which includes the remission of the penalty, the forgiveness of a penalty 
which we all had, the penalty of sin. We were all sinners. We were all born into sin. It is the removal of the condemnation. That is what forgiveness is, the removal of being condemned. We're no longer condemned. Read Romans chapter 1, uh, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 8 verse 1. It says, we, uh, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. The removal of condemnation. And forgiveness is the actual sending away of sin and sins. Why do we use both terms, sin and sins? Because sin is the root and the sins are the fruit. And forgiveness sends away both the root and the fruit. Both the sin, which was the original sin that we were all stained with, the sinful nature of man, and then the fruit, the sins that we committed, commit and will commit. It covers all of that. Because we never find scripture that describes the forgiveness of guilt, though we've all had it. It's not forgiving guilt. The sad thing is that some Christians, you know, they come and they say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm forgiven, but man, I still carry a weight of guilt. For No, you don't carry it anymore. Jesus took care of it already. We don't see any, any scriptures pertaining to uh, forgiveness of guilt. We, and we don't even see any per, uh, pertaining to the forgiveness of condemnation. No, it's all wrapped up in sin and sins. So what we do read about is the forgiveness of sin and of sins, the fullness of redeeming love and grace that covers past, present, and future and involves restoration, saving, cleansing, justifying, purifying, sanctifying, and glorifying. That's a pretty complete work, don't you think? Jesus did it all. That great old hymn, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Paul in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 through 8 says, According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. And remember now that we have to compare Colossians and Ephesians. They're very similar in, in things that are said. You know, uh, Paul actually took a lot of stuff that he said in Ephesians, his most doctrinal book, along with the book of Romans, and, 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 and then he, uh, uh, you know, cuts and pastes into Colossians. But that's okay because it's the word of God. And it was done through the power of the Holy Spirit. So he says, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Christ Jesus to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom, and notice this, sounds familiar, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he has abounded toward, toward us all in all wisdom, toward us in all wisdom and prudence. So it is in verse 14 then, going back to Colossians chapter 1, that we find Jesus' relationship to his father, and that was all review that I just gave you. And in verse 15, his relationship now, as we go on, to creation. His relationship to creation. We began last week in verse 15, the first part of it, where it says, who is the image of the invisible God. And today, we'll begin with the next phrase, the firstborn of every creature. 
Jesus is not only the sole revealer of God, the Father. He's not just the sole revealer of God. In other words, he's not just the exact representation, the exact image of the invisible God, his Father. He's also the first begotten of all creation. Now we need to come to an understanding of what firstborn means here. Because it doesn't mean what a lot of people think. In fact, a lot of cults have, have begun thinking that Jesus is the firstborn of all creatures. He's not. That's not what the term means. In fact, back when, uh, around Christmas time, when I was doing a study on the firstborn, the, the, the one fact that we, un, that we came to understand was that the Jewish people, when they would hear of the term firstborn, never thought of being born first. It was always a term that reflected inheritance. It reflected inheritance. So they never considered that it was Jesus being talked about as the firstborn of all creatures. And we're going to kind of build upon that understanding here as we go on. And it needs to be said immediately, in other words, that the term firstborn is never to be interpreted as meaning first of creatures. While there are plenty of passages and references to the Father and the Son in relation to the triune God, in other words, God in three persons, including the Holy Spirit, none even remotely hint of a chronological beginning of Jesus, that Jesus had a beginning. No, John chapter 1 verse 1 makes it very clear he had no beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Which means that the beginning for us, because God has no beginning and no end. So in other words, Scripture recognizes Jesus as the eternal Son, having no beginning and no end, and in fact, being the principal cause from which creation originated. Jesus is not created, he is the Creator. In the apostolic writings of both Paul and John, there is not even a hint of the Lord being the first of creatures. I want you to consider verse 14 of Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3 verse 14. And I find it interesting that we find this in this particular verse of a writing and a message given to a church, the church of Laodicea, that is uh, historically the church that represents the last day's apostate church. That this would be given here as, 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 a, uh, as a part of a warning, as a statement about Jesus. It says, these things say the amen. Uh, Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things say the amen, or saith the amen, the faithful and true witness, and notice the beginning of the creation of God. The beginning of the creation of God. Now this phrase... The beginning of the creation of God is not describing Jesus as he whom God created first. That is not what that means. In fact, the Greek word used by John for beginning is the word arche, A-R-C-H-E, arche. And it clearly and in context refers to Jesus as the beginner of or the chief magistrate of all creation. He's the beginner of creation. He is the originator of creation. He's the chief of creation. He's the magistrate of all creation. Creation's originating instrument, in other words. He is the beginning of the creation of God. 
creation's originating instrument. He is in proper understanding of the word, the principality, the main principality, the power, the rule over all creation. One word captures all of that. Hence, Jesus Christ is the chief principle and cause of creation, which means that he is pre-existent and he is sovereign like no other. Pre-existing meaning no beginning, no end. He's sovereign. He's been given rule over all of his creation. And by the way, he is above his creation. He is above his creation, not in his creation, in the sense, as, as many people today say, you know, he's, you know, he's in the trees, and he's in the flowers, and he's in all of these things. All right, we're going to talk about that, because that's part of Gnosticism. He's also preeminent above his creation, meaning that he is the head as well as the source. He is the head of creation and the source of creation. So knowing all of this, we can better understand the relationship between the Eternal Father and the Eternal Son. There was a, a, a declaration that Paul made to the church in Antioch back in Acts chapter 13. That sounded very much like a very prophetic statement that Paul was making to this church. I'd like to have you turn there, Acts 13 verse 32. And Paul here says, and we declare unto you glad tidings... We declare unto you good news, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus again. So now the focus is resurrection. As it is also written in the second psalm, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. That's verse 7 of Psalm 2. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, that word begotten would not have meant that he was born like we were born. And then in verse 34, it says, And as concerning that, he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. So this was, as I said, a, a prophetic word that Paul was giving to the church in Antioch. In effect, he was saying to the church, brothers, we're living in exciting times. Prophe prophecy is being fulfilled right before us. And he, and he drew their attention to Psalm 2, verse 7. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. The Messiah was to be the son of God. That was in the Old Testament understanding. Messiah is the son of God. And Jesus, Yeshua, was the Son of God. He was eternally God the Son, the second person of the Godhead, uncreated, self-existing, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. He was the Son of God when he called the worlds into existence and commanded light to shine out of darkness. He was the Son of God when he stepped out of the womb and was born a man among men, laying aside his glory but not his deity. Please understand that. He laid aside his glory, but not his deity. And he was the son of God when he stepped out of the tomb and was declared to be the son of God with power. Isn't that a, a beautiful thought? He was declared son of God 
when he came out of the womb and when he came out of the tomb. He's always been the Son of God. And declared to be the Son of God with power, as Romans chapter 1 verse 4, where Paul says, and declared the Son of God with power. Those two words, to be, are in italics, which means they're not in the original manuscript. Declared the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, which is exactly what Paul was talking to the church in Antioch about. The declaration of the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So with all of these issues in place, we can then read the text much more clearly. Verses 15 and 16 of Colossians 1. Of Jesus it says, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. And notice this, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Now, I want to point out three prepositions that we find in this verse, verse 16. So leave verse 16 up, where it says, for by him, at the very beginning of the verse. Now, many more modern translations will already have included these in, uh, into the text. But let me just say that in, in, the, in the Greek, for by him, the word by is the word en, E-N, which is literally translated in, in, for in him were all things created. By him were all things created. Then it mentions what is created in heaven, earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers. The next phrase, all things were created by him, but that's a different word. In the Greek, it's the word dia, D-I-A, dia. And it means through him. Through him. All things were created through him. By him, through him. By him, in him. By him, through him. And for him. And for is the word ice. E-I-S in the Greek. Ice. And it just means it's created for him. Created in him, through him, and for him. The context also makes it very clear that Jesus as creator is separate from creation and cannot therefore be a created being. He is separate from his creation because he created all things. He didn't create himself. This is going to be a major problem with artificial intelligence. And I'm, I'm doing some research right now on transhumanism and in artificial intelligence, and we're going to be talking about that uh, sometime in the near future, unless the Lord comes, and I hope he comes quickly. I don't have to worry about studying this stuff anymore, because it's kind of wacky. But, but folks, it's happening every day. Some new development in artificial intelligence. We've all seen the movies where, you know, the artificial intelligence becomes like a creator and starts to create itself, you know. <laughs> Problem. No being can create itself. 
Jesus created all things because he was before his creation. So, in other words, all things were made by him. They were sustained in him. So understand, they're sustained in him. And their purpose and intent are toward him. In other words, Jesus is the beneficiary of creation. All things were created in him, by him, through him, and for him. For him. The beneficiary of creation. He is the link, in other words, if you will, between God and creation. Jesus is the link between God and creation. We used to sing a song that was based upon Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, many, many years ago. It says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. All things are created for His pleasure. Therefore, He cannot have created Himself. And He cannot, therefore, be a created being. There is even more to say about Jesus as creator God. Let's go back to our text and look at verse 17 now. And you're saying, oh my God, we're going to three verses instead of just one today. Verse 17, and he is before all things and by him all things consist. So, let's look at the first phrase. He is before all things. Jesus takes precedence both in rank and in time. He's before all things. Look carefully at the word. He is before all things. It doesn't say he was before all things. This is very significant. Because the force of that statement came forth out of his reply one day to some detractors in the temple. Back in John chapter 8. Where Jesus is confronted by his critics. And a lot happened, by the way, in John chapter 8. But in verse 53, they began to question Jesus and say, Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And the prophets are dead. Whom makest thou thyself? And Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him, and keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. So what do you think they did? (laughs) Verse 59 says, They took up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. What did Jesus say to them? Before Abraham was, I is. I is and will always is and will always be is, which means I am. 
But he said even more than that because what he said was, I'm God. He used the name of God that was given to Moses at the burning bush. Who should I say is the God that I am representing? And he said, tell them, I am that I am has set me. Jesus said, I am. They knew exactly what he said. They knew that he was declaring himself as God. He claimed to be the great I am of the Hebrew scriptures. And the Jews knew that. Jesus was claiming equality with God. And in effect, claiming to be before all things. And so when Paul says he is before all things, that's true, isn't it? It's not was before. You know, he, he was before all things. No, he is before all things because he always is and will always be the great I am. And then we get another passage there in verse 17, or another phrase, by him all things consist. By him all things consist. Jesus, in other words, holds all things together. Because the word for consist is the word sunistao in the Greek. Sunistao literally means to set together, to hold together. To hold it all together. Jesus is the one by whom all things continue to exist. He holds every atom and every molecule, every proton and neutron and every all the other trons. Uh, he holds them all together. Not one of them does he let go. That's an amazing thing. The world... The agnostic, the atheist, the atheistic humanist, they all believe in science. They don't have any inkling or understanding of the fact that it's Jesus who holds, who holds all things together. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, Isaiah was given a vision of God, of God in his temple. He says, I saw the Lord. We sang about it today. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And he heard the angels sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah's reaction to that, Isaiah's reaction, he said, I am undone. That one word, undone, is an interesting word in the Hebrew because it means I am totally disintegrated. Every one of my atoms and molecules and protons and neutrons and all the other trons have just exploded in the presence of Almighty God. And interesting in the, in the English, disintegrate has an antonym, which is integrate. To be integrated is to be held together. 
In fact, it is the root word for integrity. To have integrity is to be one who is held together by truth and humility. So consider how God in Christ and Christ holds all things together. He's the one by whom all things continue to exist. If Jesus wanted to, he could let go of everything and we'd all be gone. But if Jesus didn't hold all things together, nothing would then be in existence any longer as we know it. In John 1 verse 3, it says, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. He makes it, and he holds it together, and he continues it for his good pleasure. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, it says that God, who had spoken to us in time past through the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir. There's the inheritance part of it all. He has appointed him heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. By his Son, through his Son, the Creator. And to close, we want to take one step back. We want to come to the table of communion here in just a moment. On this particular thought. Go back to verse 16 for just a moment. We're, we're actually going to need to come back to verse 16 next time as well. Because it says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. The things you see and the things you can't see whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Two things. First of all, you look at the list and it reminds you of another verse of scripture. A verse that Paul gives us in Ephesians chapter 6. When he says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. Anybody ever seen principalities? No, we can't. That's part of the invisible stuff. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. Sometimes we see the effects of those Entities, but we don't see the entities. That's one thing that we have to come back to. Because they have a lot in, a, in effect to understanding the Gnosticism of Paul's time. Now, this grand statement of Paul in verse 16 flatly contradicts the Gnostic teaching. That it was impossible for God to be linked to matter. The Gnostics considered that all matter, anything that you can see or touch, all matter was evil. And how could God be linked to evil? And we talked a little bit about this last time. How they said that the flesh was evil. And we said that it wasn't in, the, in, 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 in and of itself. 
Because Jesus put on flesh. Physically. So here, Paul is contradicting the Gnostic teaching that that it was impossible for God to be linked to matter, but it also contradicts the Gnostic belief that Jesus was the highest of angelic beings. Now, let me say that we're going. The more that we discover about Gnostic teachings of Paul's time, as well as today, there are various levels of Gnosticism. Some say that Jesus was the highest angel uh, of all, but he wasn't God, and others would say that he was a lesser angel. Just, just different levels, and we'll, we'll talk about these as we go along. Sadly, though, because of the, the agnosticism and the heretically apostate positions of many so-called Christian seminaries, which is sad to me, you know, that some of the great seminaries of the past that preached Christ and him crucified no longer do. And they've adopted these, these beliefs of new age theories and new age uh, philosophies and new age activities. They hold now Gnostic beliefs. That Jesus Christ was a little more than a man and a little less than God. That continues to challenge the church today. You might say, well, do they say that outright? Sometimes they don't, but they mean it. You know how we know that? Because they're out searching for some truth in Buddhism and bringing that into their church. Or they're trying to find some truth in Hinduism and bringing someone to come and talk about that and and, and connect some way, somehow, Christianity to Buddhism and Christianity to Hinduism or even Christianity to Islam. And churches are inviting Muslim imams to come and speak and one of the tenets of Islam is to is to tell lies so what do you think they're going to do give you enough truth and lie the rest of the way but it begins with those who say they are believers who see Jesus as a little more than a man and a little less than God And as we come to the table of communion this morning, I want you to consider this. This view that Jesus is a little more than a man and a little less than God, this view will not do. It will not do for us because we as sinners needed a Savior and that Savior must be God as well as man. Nothing less will do. Jesus is all God. And he is all man. And this is the truth of the word of God. There was an old savior, uh, I'm sorry, an old saint who once said this. A savior not quite God is a bridge broken at the farther end. Do you understand what that means? You can be walking on a bridge thinking that you're safe, thinking that you're okay, believing whatever truths you're being given about this Savior. But if he's not all God, when you get to the end of that bridge, it's not connected to anything. And it will only be peril 
and destruction not to believe in a God who was all man and all God. His name is Yeshua. His name is Jesus. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6 says, But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. And lastly, Ephesians 3 verse 9. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ, created all things in him, through him, and for Jesus Christ.